This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the Podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. Alcohol is the story of... uh medicine and culture and commerce and, and animal husbandry and you know it's a it's a it's a big story. That's Michael Lamont, author of the recent book, The In Bible, a cocktail guide for beginning and home bartenders, a new release from the University of Virginia Press. I work as a, a bar manager and bartender at a restaurant called the Alley Light in Charlottesville, Virginia. I kind of curate the fancy cocktail end of end of the bar. You know, if there's something that I can relate that will help them understand the, the drink's place in, in actual history or, or what it might taste like or help them appreciate uh, the ingredients, um, you know, uh, I'm happy to do that. Uh, you know, things like uh, the, the drink's place in history and, and, and even human history. And Micah has a point. The history of alcohol is the history of humanity taking in everything from science to economics to religion. And today, with the holiday season fast approaching, we're going to dig into some of the true tales behind a few of this season's iconic drinks, many of which you can find at Micah's Bar at the Alley Light. From medieval origins to revolutionary war stories to 19th century botany, there are more than a few stories that might be hidden in your holiday cup. So we're going to peek behind these holiday legends and go digging for facts, inspired by Micah's approach to bartending, which leans heavily on both the traditions and produce of his home state of Virginia. Seasonal produce is something that that really inspires my work, and uh, we're fortunate in in Charlottesville to uh, have a lot of cool things going on here. We've got lots of agriculture, orchards, um, uh, vineyards and, and people that are real passionate about food and bringing, bringing cool produce and, and, you know, weird things to chefs and bartenders to play with. In the United States in, in the winter, you know, it's, it's citrus season. So, you know, you get, you know, Meyer lemons, you get really, really great grapefruits, um, blood oranges. Uh, obviously, it's, it's cider and cranberry season. Uh, we do stuff with cider and cranberry. In Virginia here, we got... Um, We've got this weird citrus tree called a hardy orange. The description of it as an orange might be kind of charitable. It looks more like a little golf ball that's kind of uh, orange, yellow orange in color, but it's it's one of the only cold hardy citrus uh, trees that that grows wild in in our in our zone. Um, so I, I got a windfall of of hardy oranges and I made some marmalade with them, and I got a cocktail on our list with with hardy orange marmalade, and it's just. It's so delicious. 
As Micah says, citrus has an indelible relationship with winter, not only in North America, but throughout the world. Although winter may be citrus season in warmer climes like Florida or California, oranges as part of a Christmas or wintertime feast is way older than the 50 states. And when citrus was a precious and highly seasonal commodity, particularly in northern Europe or chilly New England and the United States, where the fruit didn't grow easily, getting a holiday shipment of fresh oranges, grapefruit, or lemons was a luxury few could afford in the wintertime. Now, if your family still likes to put oranges at the bottom of your Christmas stocking, this tradition dates to those early days, when a surprise bite of citrus was a little holiday delicacy. Not a way for your parents to remind you to eat more fruit. The days of oranges or other citrus as this kind of wintertime treat may be long gone in North America, partially thanks to the booming orange industry in states like Florida and California. But ironically enough, that Tropicana orange juice you enjoy on your daily breakfast table has more to do with Micah's little golf ball-sized hearty oranges than you might suspect. And to understand that link, we need to head back to the late 19th century, to a man named William Saunders and a small, tough little plant known as the Pomcirus trifoliata, a.k.a. the hardy orange, a plant that would help to give rise to many a generation of American raised on oranges. I'm Flora the Florida Orange, and I'm loaded with vitamin C. There's more health in a Florida Orange, that's why everybody needs a lot of little old me. Here's to your health with pure, delicious Florida Orange Juice. Today, a local grocery store might carry any number of orange varietals, from the iconic navel orange to the mandarin to even a few hybrids like the clementine or the tangelo. The Florida and California orange industry has had such a massive economic impact in those states that the Florida tourism industry offers free orange juice at any welcome center in the state. In California, well, you have heard of Orange County, right? So yeah, it's kind of a big deal. But up until the late 19th century in the states, Oranges were still in unknown quantity, grown in the odd backyard or orchard, but nowhere near the scale we see today. In the case of California, at least, folks were still trying to figure out exactly what could grow in that Mediterranean-like climate. Coffee hadn't worked, neither had weed or cotton or even silkworms. And yes, at one point, California was going to be the silkworm capital of the world. But... Nothing had worked. Enter William Saunders and the National Grange of the Order of the Patrons of Husbandry, which is a mouthful of an organizational name if ever I've heard one. Now, Saunders was a horticulturalist and a botanist, and what we probably would call today a landscape architect, responsible for designing the entire park system of the city of Washington, D.C. But let's stick to oranges for the moment. Saunders was fascinated by oranges, particularly that little hardy orange, which, according to some botanists, may not even really be an orange at all. Not really prized for its tough, bitter, and seedy fruit, its origins in China, Korea, and Japan were more often as a rootstock, as a way to help the graftings of other more delicate fruits help to grow in chilly climes. 
Saunders was entranced, believing that the little hardy orange was the key to helping citrus grow in chilly North America. He began experimenting with grafting other varieties of oranges using the hardy orange as rootstock. Because, you see, you can't just stick some orange seeds in the ground and wait for an orange tree to sprout up. You need to plant graftings, little branches or cuttings from the original fruit tree that you attach to another established plant, a.k.a. rootstock. And so, the hardy orange became the rootstock for Saunders as he experimented with growing other, more delicious, varieties of orange. And eventually, Saunders hit upon what he considered the perfect orange. The navel. A variety grown in Brazil that produced a large, sweet fruit with few, if any, seeds. Saunders knew that even though the hardy orange did well in Virginia, the navel orange would need warmer climes if it was to thrive. So, after a few hardy orange experiments, he sent two small navel orange trees out west to a woman named Eliza Tibbetts living in Riverside, California. And Eliza? Well, she took those little navel trees and ran. The oranges that Saunders had originally experimented on debuted at the 1879 Riverside Citrus Fair, winning first prize and gaining national attention. Soon, a veritable golden orange rush was on, as folks from throughout Riverside and California were eager to get their hands on graftings from Eliza's original navel orange trees. By the 1880s, California oranges had hit the ground running, and they never looked back, offering a cheap, sweet, citrusy treat that rivaled the more established orange trade down in Florida. And even today, the over 60 million annual navel oranges that are produced in California descend directly from those two small trees Saunders sent Eliza at the end of the 1870s. And by the 1880s and 1890s, people could now enjoy oranges more readily year-round, with the fruits soon making their way into cocktails and other mixed drinks. On an international scale, orange liqueurs like Curacao and Cointreau first popped up right around this time, while in America, bar books, which took inspiration from Jerry Thomas, soon were asking bartenders to include orange juice or wedges or even elaborate garnishes in a number of new recipes thanks to the growing availability of all kinds of fruit including oranges, year-round. Although you may not be able to find any hardy oranges at your local grocery store, today at the Alley Light in Virginia, you can enjoy a taste of American orangey history in cocktail form. Micah includes a drink at his bar called, appropriately enough, the Hardy Handshake, which includes Tangeray, Angostura bitters, citrus, and his own homemade hardy orange marmalade, which as it sounds, is not exactly the easiest thing to make. The fruits come out of the woods, you know, so you have to scrub each one of them. Uh, then you have to slice them, individually de-seed each slice, and they're just chock full of seeds. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> the reason why they might not show up on menus is because I'm the only uh, person uh, thick enough to try to do anything <laughs> But Micah might not be the only one dedicated to the little fruity golf ball that is the hardy orange. The revival of the hardy orange might be sooner than you think. Yeah, there's a there's a local guy uh, who runs a distillery, and he uh, 
uh, he's making a, an orange liqueur with, uh, with hearty oranges. We've got a community of, you know, foodies and hippies, and there's a, uh, there's a place out in, uh, in Nelson County, which is kind of like southwest of Charlottesville, called Edible Landscapes. And um, uh, this guy loves selling people uh, trees and shrubs and whatever that bear fruit. So I bought a, a hearty orange tree from him, and I've got it. It's a dwarf one. It's, it's in my yard. If, like Micah, you find yourself with some access to hardy oranges and fancy a bit of a orange historical challenge, we'll include Micah's recipe for hardy orange marmalade at our website at thefeastpodcast.org. Micah's hardy orange marmalade, the star ingredient of his hearty handshake drink at the alley light, gets us back to the topic at hand. Cocktails. Winter cocktails, that is. And the birth of the orange industry, specifically the increased availability of citrus to the American market during the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, just so happens to have coincided with another turn in American food culture. Well, maybe in this case it's better to call it beverage culture. Yes, around the same time William Saunders was fussing with orange plants in Washington, D.C. and Virginia— the so-called Professor Jerry Thomas was making waves in American drink circles with the publication of the now-famous How to Mix Drinks or the Bon Vivant's Companion. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. First published in 1862, this book is often considered to be the first true American guide to mixing alcoholic drinks, a.k.a. cocktails. Now, as a professional bartender, Jerry Thomas's book was really intended as an aid for his fellow bartenders in the industry. Beyond a cornucopia of recipes for mixed drinks, in the original edition you can find information on how to, for example, make blue food coloring which apparently involves some smoking sulfuric acid. Or, for example, how to make ginger or caraway cordial. Even he includes a few recipes for bitters. But overall, you get the sense that this is not a book for the faint-hearted bartender, let alone someone who doesn't know their Manhattans, from their martinis, from their maraschino liqueur. But if you do know what you're looking for, there's a trick to not only Thomas's book, but almost any cocktail recipe guide, whether from the 1860s or the 21st century. And it's in Micah's book, The In Bible, where this long-held bartending trick is finally revealed to us novices. Who I envision uh, benefiting from the book is, is, you know, the customer who sits at the bar and just, like, uh, doesn't even know where to start asking questions. When I start... You know, the, open the book. I, you know, I empathize with that person because that was me. So I really kind of start from from ground zero and and talk a little bit about, um, you know, how humans have uh, approached balancing beverages in the past, how that informs, uh, you know, modern approach to to balancing flavors and cocktails, the necessary components of a of a of a of a cocktail, and then uh, going on to a little bit about technique, how to technically execute a beverage, and then uh, giving you a basic recipe that you can kind of riff off of. 
And, and if you look in old cocktail books, um, you know, it's a really common thing to say, you know, you'll have a list of like a page of 10 recipes and, you know, you'll have a Ramos gin fizz and then you'll have a, a silver gin fizz and it'll say, you know, well, just replace the gin purport component with a, with a, you know, a rum component. And then, you know, so the, the strategy of, of substituting like ingredient for like ingredient is, you know, it's ancient. And uh, it's it's not something, it, it's it's an industry thing, and it's it, I, I felt like you know the public just ought to know about it, you know, because it's such an easy thing to uh, you know transform a basic recipe and 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 make something new and cool and potentially tasty with uh, you know a basic recipe. The formula that Micah uses to explain this in the book might be considered the fundamental building blocks of cocktail making: the combination of a certain kind of alcohol with a sweet as well as a bitter component, with each part of this equation able to be swapped out to create a new or different type of mixed drink. If you consider these three elements, alcohol, sweet, and bitter, the underlying structure of a cocktail, what's often known as the Mr. Potato Head method of cocktail making, all of a sudden, the links between different kinds of mixed drinks, even obscure ones, becomes clear. The, the Martinez is kind of an example, which is one of my favorite cocktails. Um, so, and I've got, a, I've got that uh, cocktail in the book. Uh, I think the recipe is uh, sequel parts uh, barrel gin uh, with some, some vermouth. Uh, I like using punti mess and just a little bit of maraschino liqueur. So, uh, so, so basically, uh, the Martinez is is kind of a, a historical bridge between the Manhattan and the Martini. You're like, oh, I know what a Manhattan is. Oh, I know what a Martini is. And you're like, okay, so it's got gin with sweet vermouth. And they're like, oh, well, that's interesting. And I'm like, and, you know, to give it a little more depth, we, we use a barrel gin. So it's almost kind of like this real kind of uh, barely fragrant, uh, floral, you know, spicy uh, uh, Manhattan. And I, I think that kind of helps people, you know, anchor something that could otherwise be really arcane and abstract and, and maybe intimidating uh, into something that they can understand and hopefully appreciate a little better. So in this equation for the Martinez, if the alcohol or spirit is your barrel-aged gin, your sweet component is both the sweet vermouth and the maraschino liqueur, with the Angostura bitters coming in as your bitter component. Now, to make a related drink, like the Martini, to keep things simple, you'd keep the gin and remove the Angostura bitters, adding, at least in this version, a twist of lemon, replacing the bitter with sour, or citrus. Obviously, things can get way more complicated than this, but this easy building block method helps to uncover the various families of mixed drinks, the relationships between one kind of drink and another. With this information, let's head back to good old Professor Jerry Thomas and his 1862 Guide to Mixed Drinks. There, you can find exactly the kind of swapping in and out of ingredients that Micah was talking about. In Thomas's guide, this ingredient swap can be found as early as the table of contents. Under the name for the brandy julep, for example, Thomas lists all the ways you can fiddle with the drink, transforming it easily into something new. So, for example... Beyond the brandy julep, there is a gin julep, a whiskey julep, something called a pineapple julep, and not one, but two kinds of mint julep. Your standard, 
and then something called Captain Marriott's recipe for a mint julep. Now, according to Thomas, apparently Captain Marriott was responsible for taking the classic southern mint julep back to England, where he apparently decided that the drink would be infinitely improved with the addition of brandy, peach brandy, and apparently a little pineapple. Now, not to judge, but there may be a reason we don't make Marriott's recipe that often anymore. This julep example is a very basic approach to the building blocks that take us from one drink to the next. In this case, just variations on the same theme. But already in 1862, there were not only different alcohols associated with one style of drink, in this case the julep, but also anecdotal stories about locations or even people who helped make the drink famous. In the julep's case, of course, Captain Marriott. Let's look at another classic winter cocktail, one that has a long and sometimes unfortunate history in the United States. That's right, we're going to talk nog. Eggnog, that is. And in terms of anecdotal histories of beverages, it's hard to top nog. Yes, eggnog, that old holiday chestnut. Known too often as the bane of the holiday office party, This beverage is precisely where we're going to start our demolition of some long-standing cocktail confusion. Micah and I are here to officially set the record straight on eggnog, and why Virginia in particular has a special relationship to this holiday treat. It all started way back in merry old medieval England. Hold on a second, that's way too far back. If there has been one, there has been a thousand articles and stories written about eggnog's murky origins as something called posset, a popular drink or custard that was the hit of the Middle Ages. So popular, of course, it inspired an entire variety of drinkware known as posset pots. And seriously, that's worth a Google image search, but we'll put a few examples on our website if you don't know what we're talking about. Now, very briefly, if you've managed to escape the posset party thus far, this concoction was often a heated, milky, eggy, often boozy beverage to keep medieval folks warm during the cold days of winter. Not so much a specific recipe, posset could take any number of adaptations. Sherry, for example, was a popular ingredient, leading to more than a few people referring to the beverage as sack posset, with sack as another word for sherry. So long before any cocktail guide, by Jerry Thomas or otherwise, the concept of posset, or as it would eventually become known in North America, as nog, was a pretty adaptable beverage, usually requiring an egg or maybe some cream, things often available to the agrarian communities of early North America. But that was pretty much it. The availability of cream and milk, combined with an easy access, at least for a time, with Caribbean rum, meant that eggnog became North America's go-to beverage. By the 1790s, writers were commenting on how much Americans seemed to love a version of nog, including beaten egg, milk, cream, and rum, which they would enjoy as a breakfast drink on chilly winter mornings. There was even a riot over an eggnog ban at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in the 1820s, when cadets went nuts when they were prohibited from drinking their spiked holiday nog. For the next 100 years, until American Prohibition was implemented in 1920, 
alcoholic eggnog was such a part of American holiday traditions, there were even eggnog-themed parties, where folks would travel from house to house, enjoying every household's slightly different take on the classic winter warmer. And by Jerry Thomas's day in the 1860s, eggnog, or variations of it, were still so popular, he includes not one, but four different recipes in his book, including a sherry version, which seems to be the closest descendant of that original sack posset medieval recipe, not to mention a recipe for Baltimore eggnog, featuring both rum and Madeira wine. And then there's an intriguing recipe for something called General Harrison's eggnog, which is another name for old Tippecanoe, that is, U.S. President William Henry Harrison, a man often remembered for catching cold at his presidential inauguration in 1841 and promptly dying one month later. But even 20 years after his death in the 1860s, his preferred eggnog recipe apparently lived on in Thomas's book, which swaps out any fortified liquor for hard apple cider combined with egg and sugar. Now, I recently tried General Harrison's nog recipe, and I have to admit, it's way better than you'd expect. We'll put a recipe for it up on the website if you want to toast old Tippy Canoe, too. But let's get back to Virginia and Micah at the Alley Light. Around this time of year, Micah also continues the tradition of American nog at the bar. Yeah, I mean, eggnog is essentially liquid ice cream. I, I've found my recipe um, just on, like on like a little chow hound thread and uh, just minimally tweaked it, added just a little vanilla and cinnamon and some nutmeg on it. And it's, yeah, it's just so delicious. It tastes like ice cream. I really like using uh, uh, brandy with it. I've been been adding some uh, some apple brandy. We've got this uh, distillery just down the road, Laird's. They make a really good uh, seven-and-a-half-year uh, apple brandy. It's really tasty. Um, also like using rum. To me, bourbon can overpower an eggnog, but for people who love bourbon, um, they love bourbon eggnog. While Micah may have found his recipe for eggnog online, interestingly enough, with his apple brandy base, he may be making a more historically inspired Virginia style of eggnog than he knows. Like the Madeira wine that went into Jerry Thomas's Baltimore eggnog, recipes from the 1890s specify that a Virginia eggnog has to be made with, well, you guessed it, apple brandy, with sometimes a little bit of rum added for more flavor. So Mike is accidentally making a hundred-year-old recipe of iconically Virginian eggnog. Now, before we leave you, speaking of internet recipes, it's time to put at least one cocktail myth to bed, also involving eggnog and also involving Virginia. Home to Mount Vernon, the residence of the first president of the United States, George Washington. And like many stories involving old George, there are more than a few articles floating around online that claim to be old GW's official recipe for eggnog. Even the tried-and-true Farmer's Almanac claims a specific recipe as authentic, which includes sherry, brandy, rum, rye whiskey, along with the traditional cream, milk, sugar, and eggs. But alas, dear listeners, the internet, yet again, can lead you astray. 
While records show that George and Martha Washington indeed loved their nog just as much as any other North American in the 1790s, what version they actually served seems to have been lost to the sands of time. The potent concoction that the farmer's almanac lists only surfaced as a recipe in the 1940s in a small booklet by one Olive Bailey entitled, appropriately enough, Christmas with the Washingtons. Now, having made and tested this potent, potentially presidential potation, say that five times fast, I can assure you it is delicious. But try not to read too much into its historical veracity. At most, let's just say it blends some of the iconic alcohols included in eggnog throughout American history. And besides, Micah's version is way better. We've included Micah's recipe on our website, along with, of course, the dubious George Washington version, so you can make some historical, or maybe not-so-historical variations of eggnog at your own Mount Vernon this season. A huge thank you to Michael Lamont for introducing us to not only the hearty orange, but also the iconically Virginian style of eggnog. His book, The In Bible, A Cocktail Guide for Beginning and Home Bartenders, is available now, wherever good books are sold. Another huge thanks goes out to Becky Tannenbaum and the folks at UVA Studios for all their help with putting this episode together. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with technical direction by Mike Port. Music today by Jazar, Andy G. Cohen, the Victor Herbert Orchestra, and the Sony Ventorum Wind Quintet. And here, on our last episode of 2017, we want to wish a very, very happy holidays to all our listeners, wherever you are. We are going to take a quick break to enjoy the holiday season, but we'll be back in January with more great meals that made history. Until then, I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe. I'm Kyle. I'm Jeff. And we host a show called Writers Who Don't Write. It's pretty lit. Where we interview authors and creative people about their careers, their process, and the one story they've struggled to tell. And when I got a look at getting to write for a living, I was there just 24-7. Writing is like this crazy neurotic singular pursuit that you do alone. Anybody who tells you otherwise is lying. We're so lucky that this is the life we've chosen. We interview some of the top creatives in the field. What field, Jeff? All fields. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.